0: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo.
1: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Three excellent guests join me this week, so please could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role?
2: Hi, Phil. Uh, my name is Tony Fretwell. I am the uh, Women's Super League FA Head of Academies. Um, in women's football, um, though I do have a background um, in both codes of rugby.
0: Hi Phil, Uh, my name is Ben Lazenby. Uh, I have experience over the last 15 years, probably a little bit longer now, of uh, working within Rugby League and Rugby Union Academies. Um, Currently looking at my next move and and where to uh, push my skills for the next opportunity.
3: Hi Phil, I'm Greg Mannion, I'm the junior academy manager and academy coach for Leicester Tigers Um, and I suppose my background is started off as a teacher and then entered the coaching profession in rugby league and transferred into rugby union about four years ago.
1: Fantastic. Gents, absolute privilege to have you all on. Really excited for this one. So just a quick reminder before we get going for anybody listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. Uh, Tony, we're going to come to you first. What is it you're going to chat to us about?
2: The the, the, the question that you posed about um, bringing a, 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 a podcast or a book or a um, uh, a TV program or anything that had, had kind of influenced us, really got me thinking. Um, and I kind of reflected back on um, my career collectively. I had been um, academy lead at Halifax Rugby League Club and then at Witness Vikings. Um, and I was uh, on both occasions, I was at clubs that were in, in financial perils at that time. <laughs> and um, that led to kind of a, a, a fear and an anxiety and a belief that um, whilst I was coaching and working in talent, talent development, I needed to get a proper job, whatever that was. Um, and part of my decision to go to Witness Vikings was to combine that with a part-time PGCE to train as a teacher. And I did that um, and I became a teacher and I taught PE for a period. I was a head of PE. I progressed to be assistant head and into senior leadership um and as often happens with people in education I, I realized there were bits of it that i loved and bits of it that i didn't um and during that 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 period i had personal challenges that i, I wasn't particularly dealing with and for those that have, have heard me before or, or know me personally they know that um kind of my uh, kind of drive to Continue the discussions around mental health are really important. Um, and I hit a time where I was struggling personally, um, and as a knock-on effect, I was struggling professionally as well. And I and I remember I was I was googling things just to um, to to just kind of find some answers um, to the problems that I was experiencing myself. And and I stumbled across a video on YouTube. And um, it was, what if money was no object? And it was one of these kind of concocted videos whereby um, there there was somebody with a a fairly posh accent who was giving this kind of lecture to students. Uh, And that resonated with me because at the time I was teaching and um, he spoke about, if you don't know what you want to do in your life, consider that money has no object, consider that money has no value, or even it doesn't exist. Um, and what would you do with your time and then once you've found the answer to that that's what you need to do and it's almost stop looking at the money and consider the way that you enjoy your life and and that led me to kind of find out who this person was who spoke and 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 probably find out some more stuff because i found it amazing and i found it was a philosopher who had died before I was even born. He died in 1973. Called Alan Watts, um, and it turned out he had brought over learnings, uh, Zen learnings from Buddhism, um, from the Far East, you know, way before I was even born. And and if I'm honest, for somebody with a rugby background who was playing rugby to to kind of think that Zen and Buddhism was Um, something that I would find interesting and powerful and inspirational. I'd have never believed that. Um, And and then I read a book um, called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And actually, I understood that we have this constant striving to achieve something, to take us to the next goal. What I realized was in, in having a, a life where you were constantly striving for the next thing, you never stopped to appreciate that um, life was the here and the now, and were you enjoying it? And if you're always planning on reaching a destination, and that destination doesn't really exist, can you ever actually enjoy it? So I, I it, that guided me to, to make a few decisions. I had the opportunity to go and work at the RFL um, in the performance unit. Um, it was a pay cut. From what i was earning uh when i was in senior leadership in education but i just realized that the here and now and enjoying what i was doing was the crucial bit the money wasn't the most important part um so i I did that and 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 started to decide that the things that i were doing and the enjoyment that i got in them were going to enable me to be a better version of myself um and that this the, the 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 wisdom of the insecurity is that If you realize that you don't have any control over the final destination, that just happens. And the control is making choices that are right to make you happy. Then you actually um, have a better, more fulfilled life than constantly wanting to climb this ladder and not knowing where it's going to take you. So um, yeah, if somebody had met me kind of 10 years before I discovered Zen Buddhism as an inspiration, um i would never believe them but just that, that that concept of um think about what you would like to do if money didn't exist and then do that and try and make that a career and, and i think that's the best bit of advice i've ever heard um and it's the key to kind of being happy in what what you're doing and if you're happy in what you're doing that's when you actually start to be a high performer you know you can only be high a high performer if you're happy you
1: know Fantastic. I, I yeah, Alan Watts is definitely one of my favourite um, philosophers, and I, I I often wonder whether we we do a lot of theory and we do a lot of ed and we do a lot of kind of um, you know X's and O's and tactics and all this type of stuff. I've never been on a course where we've really touched on much sports philosophy or even life philosophy, and I often wonder if that's a maybe a missing piece of the. The kind of the puzzle that actually would it would it be beneficial for coaches to be thinking more deeply about some of these and players and just people in general more deeply about how we operate in our lives because I, I definitely see that a lot I guess with coach education that coaches would want to be on oh, a level well when's my next level two and when my next level three and when I get there I'll be something and it, it adds that kind of sense of identity and that there's an arrival point and I, I love the fact you said you know you're just experiencing stuff. You're just going on a journey to, you're never going to end up anywhere. Ultimately, I guess, you end up, we die. Like, that's, that's the final end it. There's not really a, there's something in between. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, how was that actually affected on a day-to-day basis?
2: Um, <clears throat> it stopped me constantly striving for promotion and what is the next thing? Because, look, they, 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 the listeners to this podcast are listening because they are predominantly coaches or coaching interests them. And there's one thing that the higher you climb in coaching, the near you are to the sack. So um, embrace that issue. Accept that you can change that. So the wisdom of the insecurity, don't, don't worry about that. But enjoy your coaching. If you think about the coaches who have had longevity in their career, it's probably because they've managed to, as best they can, ignore all the nonsense that goes on around it and actually really enjoyed the interactions with the players that they work with. How many times do we see behaviours are negative in coaches because they are driven by the desire for climbing, achieving, obtaining. So, particularly with youth coaches, most of the negative behaviours you see are driven by that exam that usually takes place on a Sunday. And, it, and and the results there is when you look at the league table. But actually, if they focus on, can I help these players get better? Can I enjoy the interactions? Can I help them to enjoy the interactions? Then actually you'll probably be in a better place to, to get those kind of peripheral benefits of, of winning. But if you try and forget the winning and realise that on any given day, the team that you're going to play might just be better than you, don't worry about that. And enjoy, enjoy that, that moment of what you're doing, then that actually leads you to be a better coach, which in turn probably means you're going to be around a lot longer. So it's kind of being able to let go of that desire to keep climbing and just let it happen. Um, and if you let it happen, that's when the best coaches. And that's probably why teachers of, of, of PE, because you don't do exams in the practical subjects. You do exams in GCSE PE, but, but there's no kind of football or tennis exam. You are working to teach the area of physical education that you are teaching at that particular time. Um, and there is some nominal grades given to it, but it's actually for the aesthetics and the enjoyment and don't, don't let anybody confuse you. If you teach PE, your real, um, the real thing that you can attain as a PE teacher is to develop lifelong love of an activity amongst those young people. If they go and do dance or tennis or, or aerobics or rugby for the rest of their lives, you've lit a spark and you've, you've changed their lives forever. doesn't matter what grade they get or how high they climb. And and if you can feel kind of achievement in that, what a lucky coach you are, really, and what a lucky teacher you might be.
1: I also wonder how much of it then starts to become about a sense of identity uh, in terms of the issues you talked about. You know, coaches, if, if we start believing that our identity is aligned to the results we have or the performances we have or the level we're at. Um, and, and I'll throw this open to all of you of either your experiences of, of that, maybe that mentality or the challenges around that or what you've seen in, in your experiences. But I, I do, I do wonder if maybe we need to try and separate that, that help people understand they're not, it's, it's like the fight club motto, isn't it? You're not your car. You're not your job. You know, you're not the the suit you wear, all these types of things. <laughs> You're, you're not your under-12s result. From the afternoon. People were clearer on that and that some of those
2: behaviours. I've, I've seen coaches apply for roles and put, um, I won the under-13 George Cup. You didn't. The players did. And you happened to be fortunate enough to work with on the face of it, a fairly talented bunch of kids. Um, But the coaches who focus on their achievements, so I've become more reflective at how I analyse my performance. I've started to look at how I do things. That's the kind of things that you want to look for. Um, and, And from my own coaching, I've been lucky enough to coach, as juniors, some players who've gone on to be senior international players, some of whom have had careers in the NRL in Australia and won won premierships. Um, But I get just as much satisfaction from seeing a kid I coached who wasn't particularly good, but you see on social media that their profile picture is that they play down at the local club. That's just as valuable because one had their life changed by their experiences which many coaches have, have had an input into that but so did the other one they just didn't make any money out of it so it, it kind of goes full circle what's money with no objects and that, that's why I picked that piece
1: Go on Greg jump in
3: Yeah I, I really echo what, what Tony's saying in, in, that st- in that sentiment because I suppose from my my transition in, in from being a teacher uh, to becoming to becoming a coach starts from meeting Tony as we were teaching in the same area and and the first thing was we had a passion for a sport what wasn't very popular in the region that we we're in like you know in the middle of, of Trafford nobody really wanted to play and just by fortunate and a bit of luck there was there was the two of us and a couple of people who were actually starting to to want to get people playing rugby league and, and trying to get lads playing that sport and and I know from from just catching up with people still that there are lads who we we coached and, and worked on creating little moments and little teams and opportunities and they're still playing this the sport now. Now they don't have to be big names they don't have to be any superstars. It's just the fact that you you give them an opportunity to experience something. You made it an environment which was rich of opportunities for them. because of that they they, they strived and enjoyed it and then they're still involved and and I suppose As I've started to get more into a coaching environment, I've started to understand that that reflection is more about me as an individual. and What am I doing to make sure I can be the best that I can be in my environment? Whereas the honest truth is, it's probably starting off. I definitely looked at it and went, right, I have to create a team that wins matches because people will see me then being a good coach. And then I'll be known as, as that person. And, and I suppose my my learning curve started a little bit on that when I moved down into the Midlands area. And again, it, it was originally the Rugby League programme that I was running in, in Loughborough, which you became very isolated very quickly because actually not many people look in in that environment because it's not seen as a traditional rugby area. So for all the hard work you were doing, you, you did start to feel like no one was actually seeing what you were doing and actually you were just this this ghost in an environment what no one saw. And actually, that's when you—that's when I had to start realising that actually it wasn't then about what external presence was being created. It was actually about what I was doing for the people who were in my company for a constant period of time. And I got the biggest reflection on that on Wednesday night when I went to a local rugby league club just to, to go down and do a session. And it turns out that in that group of 30 lads, there was about 15 lads who I'd coached. And, and within three or four minutes of being at that session, every one of them had come over fist bumps, obviously COVID safe, but, but wanted to come and say hello and wanted to just check in with me and ask how I am. And as, as much as I wanted to check in with them. And, and I think that was a real prominent moment that actually coaching's about those relationships and about them, the rich opportunities for people to experience something and you're just part of it. But, but when you do it for the right reasons and you understand them relationships and and what you're trying to get out of it, I think actually the, the benefits and the development of those involved is, is far greater than if you just focus on on that winning moment.
0: I just, um, just jump in there because I think there's a, there's a real natural desire within people to, to feel the need to have a purpose and to feel the need to have an identity. And I think... People sometimes get into coaching, as you say, and they've got a, a very different viewpoint. And I think we're talking about the philosophy there of of identifying kind of what what is it that is it the marker of success. What is it that that means something? And when you start digging into it, it's we probably do need, in a way, to look at redefining or, or refining what what it means, what that role is, you know. And and for some people to wear a track suit... And be involved. That that is enough, and and the rest of it is probably the blur. The real area of focus comes in on just that. Um, for others, like you mentioned, it may well be the final result at the end of it. Well, the final result and the focus is there, and everything else goes into a blur, and that becomes their identity. Um, and it, it probably similar to you guys working in a an environment that allows players to progress to be. Um, well, let's just say professionals or or elite high performers. It's brilliant. It really is, you know, great to see that end product. But the same excitement hits me when I'm down with Keithley under 10s at a weekend and and they've got smiling faces and they want to come back because I've had the best hour of the week. And it it became a philosophy to say, well, if we've got the the Yorkshire under 18s on a Monday night and we've got an hour, we've got to make that hour the best hour of the week. And then if we've got a different group, we've got to make that their best hour of the week. And it, it might be, it might, it might fall slightly short. But if we go in with a very different view that there's such a such a tight outcome and it is, well, we have to win this. We become very detached to that kind of that identity becomes detached to where the real impact can be. I think it probably something you've covered on other earlier podcasts when you're talking about identity, it is about that non-duality side of things. You know is what really you know are you a facilitator are you there if you were there would somebody else do it i are, are you are you the keystone for it all happening or are you a man or woman who is part of it a, a, a bigger part you know bigger picture of, of something um for for me seeing that excitement and and that discovery and the kind of experimenting and trying especially with um an environment when you're in an academy whether rugby league or rugby union you can try things and you can promote ideas and seeing the players grab hold of them and then really run with it that's a really exciting bit and it fails more times than it succeeds but eventually when that then pennies start to drop for me that's a bit I miss every day seeing that that's a really exciting part of it and sometimes you might have to play a slightly bigger part you might have to guide more Sometimes you just have to let them run with it and step back and shut your mouth for a bit and just step away from it. And it's you look at it there and say, well, what you know, what are our purposes? And look, taking it back to that philosophy, what is the purpose? And if we're talking coaching, is it an identity? Is it a facilitator? Is it you could you could list? I think like you do with a lot of coaching, coaches, you could list all them different roles that potentially you may have to the to the group you're coaching
1: what I find fascinating with that I think is our desire to want to help people get better is probably never attributed to ego and and coaches or people that want to want to be seen as winners and want teams to win that's always attributed to ego and and I would argue they're both the same it's the same ego and ego serves a purpose and I don't think we should always look at ego as being negative you know it, it, it gives us a lot of drive it it, it for, you know, not forces us, but it, it gives us that that want or desire to to be better and improve and do all these things to to achieve more. And whether that's ach- ourselves achieve or other people achieve through our work, I don't think it matters. So I'm always really conscious when we get into this that it it can sound a little bit preachy. It sounds a little bit high horse. That it's oh well, no, we should be about development, and and no, we shouldn't be about winning. And I I I really try and kind of tailor this to say like everyone knows winning is important no one plays sport because they don't want to win but it but it's just it's recognizing the ego when it's taking you to a place that probably has negative consequences ahead of feeding the ego when it's working with people that can have really positive consequences and and maybe that's the layer we don't get into enough with to, to discuss or explain or whatever and it just kind of sounds like oh no we're in the we're in the anti-winning camp, and anyone that wants to win is wrong, and, and oh, we're all about holistic development and stuff, and it's kind of like, well, I don't know, it's the same thing driving both. Let, let's just try and create a better awareness of when is it impacting me doing one, and when is it impacting me doing the other, and what are the potential outcomes, and I, I don't know. I don't Outside of lots of little conversations, I haven't really found a way to to spark that up I'm not sure I don't know how we take that on the mass coaching world
2: um I think Phil that we undervalue making mistakes um and what I mean by that is if I reflect on when I started coaching within a professional club was very young and I was very young um and that opened the door for me because I was cheap and willing to work 70 hours a week um, and that's how I got my first opportunity and that's how a lot of people get their first break working in the professional game. They don't have a family, they um, might not be in a relationship so working 70-80 hours a week with all different grades in the club, earning 25 grand that, that, that's okay um, and when I started if I only had about earned 25 grand and um, I, I look back and I would do quotes for local newspapers. I had a page in the program. I um, would kind of jump up and down if we were doing well in the league. Um, when I was at Widness, John Myler nicknamed me Fish and Chips because he said you were always in the newspaper. Um, and now I look back and I realize I was a young coach really excited by what he was doing, but actually learning by doing stuff wrong and, and making it about me and results more than about what it was that I was there to do, which was to make players better. But whilst there were mistakes, I think had I not have made them, I don't think I would be a practitioner that I feel I am now. And, and I, I, I absolutely, I, I work with academy managers and coaches in, in women's football now, and I, I previously did that in Rugby League. I, I'm a, a member and a, and a very slow player at, at my local uh, rugby union club. And I constantly say to coaches who work with players, make mistakes, be, be comfortable with making mistakes, but reflect on it. Because you want to become experienced by doing something, get it wrong learning from it and getting better. So don't be afraid of mistakes. And and I, I think when you look at young coaches, the first mistake they make is they make it about them. The team wins, they must be a good coach. We're top of the league, I must be doing a great job. But actually, the coach who's at the bottom of the league is doing an incredible job if they're fulfilling the games because they keep coming and the more you coach and the more you reflect, <clears throat> the more you learn that those are the lessons in coaching. And you learn to get satisfaction from smaller things as you get a bit older. But if you're older, to be an experienced coach, you need to have been doing it when you were younger. So, you know, build up that experience over time. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Reflect. And and I I, I would wager any half-decent coach would look back and go, five years ago, ten years ago, I can't believe I used to do that, because I know I do. I work with young coaches now who are making the same mistakes I made 20 years ago, and I know that makes me sound old, but that's okay, because the only way they're going to get better is to make those mistakes, learn from it, and get better as a result. It's not the right thing to cut them and, and want the finished article. because You'll never get the finished article. Everybody's always learning. The best coaches are always learning anyway, that's for sure.
1: Completely agree. And I think that segues really quite nicely into, into Ben's piece. So we'll kind of jump across around, I guess, the role of mentoring and actually uh, a little bit on actually how that can benefit coaches um, in making those mistakes and being a, a sounding board and, uh, and operating in that role. So this is almost like it's planned, Ben, but it, it definitely isn't. So, um, yeah, we'll come over to you.
0: That's great. It, it's almost seamless. It magic that isn't it it's uh amazing um well yeah i the reason this came about as my topic um uh over the past few weeks i've been going through so i'm a prolific note taker you probably see me on the other side of this zoom call scribbling stuff down and, and i it is that is just me all over i make notes i've got them everywhere i keep my notes i come back and i look through them and there's loads of nonsense in there there's loads of absolute you know brilliant things in there as well and it's it's part of my reflection it's part of my uh, learning process and and I'm probably more likely to remember things as well if I've if I've scribed them down somewhere even if it's on you know on the back of a beer mat somewhere or something like that I'll, I'll remember it and I'll probably know where it is um so I've been looking through some of my old notepads and one one thing that's in there um, and, and a re- repeating theme and I messaged a couple of, of people I've previously worked with in the week about it as well just because the, 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 this concept that keeps recurring is around the idea of mentoring and mentoring coaches or merit, uh, mentoring professional sports staff and it, it doesn't have to be professional this can be in in, in any setting really and it can be it can be coaches or it can be uh, uh, support staff. It can be the team manager at the, the local clubs under nines as they go through to under 18s. It could be strength and conditioners. But it's around mentoring and the idea of mentoring as opposed to where we seem to end up in coaching the coaches. Um, so I, I wrote down a couple of notes from it and um, picked a little bits from here and there. Mentoring as a concept is that long-term relationship, usually informal built on mutual respect trust where the mentor's knowledge and experience is available when required to be shared or to guide the mentee and develop their skills for now and the future. So very much not just a, this is how I did it. So you should do it. This is how I think you should do it. This is what the coaching manual says. So go and do that. Um, and it's, I, I from my experience, I think I probably used a bit of a sounding board or a multi-mentoring type model that I created through connections and through working my way, way through sport, and probably not, probably not the definition of it because I didn't have enough contact with all those people to, for it to be a truly mentoring program. And looking at the notes that I've had, I'm looking at them and thinking, there's a there's a gap here. There's a real gap to, to have something um, that would support coaches at any level who are always battling with new ideas and new circumstances within their coaching, whether that be day-to-day, whether that be programming week-to-week, month-to-month. There's always something that you, as a coach, you either haven't encountered or encountered slightly differently, and you reflect yourself and you learn from it. But to have the sounding board or to have the guidance of somebody who may have been there before or may have done it, albeit in a different sport or something like that, is a real area that I'm 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 keen to bring to the group for discussion, really. Um, I've seen it most recently where there is it's terms mentoring and it might realistically short to mentor. It might be through a level three or a level four course. You get a mentor that goes with you. And they keep you on track with that course and then specific subjects. And they're very much outcome focused and syllabus fixed, really specific outcome goals. And in business, that would be a business coach comes in and it's short term. We need to get this performance here. I will help you do it. But the long-term mentorship and that it, uh, one of the one of the references I've sent through to you Phil, there was a great term. It's a mixture of a parent and peer relationship with a function to be a transitional figure. So you are seeing that long term, and I wanted to bring it. I've got a couple more things to maybe interject, but bring it to to ask the group their experience of of mentoring, um, if you feel that there's a gap yourself, um, but also how how as a, whether it be your own sports or as a Just as a wider coaching support you know idea how do we support this how do we get this better because i think we could be so much better within this this area under under this umbrella that i've mentioned of of mentoring so over over to the to the very quiet looking people
2: (laughs) in 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 terms of um mentoring i think there's two different Different types. I think we often see mentoring has to be formal and, and an appointed mentor. So I, I work at the FA um, and I have um, a formal mentor. It used to be Les Howie, um, who worked at the FA for many years and and was you know, held in high regard by many people at many different levels in the FA. And I still keep in touch with Les now, absolutely fantastic. My mentor now is uh, Rachel Pavlo, who um, has been involved in the women's game for over 30 years and and has an incredible footprint on women's football. Um, But away from formal mentors, I've got dozens of mentors. I had had a meeting um, today with a guy called Stuart Wilkinson, who um, is, is doing some work um, in, in his role with University of Central Lancashire. But my relationship with Stu goes back to 1998, when I was a support member of staff on a camp. And support staff blew up the balls, put down the cones. But he gave me an opportunity um, to do warm-ups and, and get involved in, in coaching sessions. And that was a breakthrough. Um, and, and Stu mentors me. I've got lots of other mentors. Uh, at, at various times, I've been mentored by both Ben and Greg because uh, of the nature of our work. You know, I've, I've I've met with them and talked about work that I'm doing now in football. Um, I've worked with them when they've been working in rugby league, when they've been working in rugby union. And I think we all have a network of, for want of a better phrase, just good people who are open-minded, who we think we can learn, who we bounce ideas off. Um, and, and you know, this podcast is in many ways about about mentors because what, what is a mentor? Surely a mentor is somebody who jointly reflects on your practice with you. Um, and, and I'm a, a huge advocate of the philosophy of remember people on the way up because you might need them on the way down and also paying it forward. Um, I had some very lucky breaks in my career and continue to do so. Um, And one of them was I wanted to do my dissertation on psychological profiling of rugby players uh, back in 96. And um, I started alphabetically ringing clubs. Barrow didn't answer the phone. So I I, I didn't get them. Um, I didn't get any answer from uh, Batley or Bradford. I got to D and I rang Dewsbury Rams and Neil Kelly answered the phone. He was the, the person who was in the office. He was the coach at the time. And it was because of Neil saying yes that I got a breakthrough into working with professional rugby league players. And later, Neil appointed me when he was the head coach at Witness. Um, so everybody needs a lucky break. So you know, mentoring young people to actually do the job that you're doing in the future better than you. Don't see him as a threat. See him as a great ally. You know. So as I think I think formal mentoring is one thing, but embracing informal mentoring—what what an opportunity that is!
3: I think uh, just just to follow up on that, it, it's like we we have we have all had conversations in, in our time in way our path our paths have met, and uh, like to be told if it weren't for Tony, I probably wouldn't have been in rugby union either because Tony had just moved into football and made a transition into a, a sport which was, having seen Tony and his, his physical figure completely alien to him, he's definitely not a footballer. Um, so so the the, the chance when I got asked would I be interested in going to Leicester Tigers, I, the first thing I did was pick the phone up and, and speak to Tony, because I wanted to see how how he was reflecting on his transition and taking Maybe, maybe I might phrase this wrong Tony but it was also a bit of a leap of faith because it was a little a bit of an unknown um, and that definitely was a, was a feeling I had with with being a very staunch Wigan kid who'd you know brought up on on, on on very much a rugby league background so so the idea of being able to pick up the phone and speak to people is it, it, massive and Stu Wilson was mentioned and you know I, I've been very fortunate to pick up the phone and speak to Stu where, where I'm going with this is and I'm stuttering a little bit because this is this is where my problem with long-term men- mentoring and, and the ability to sort to of people is actually a personal one. I I have a lot of anxieties, so speaking to people actually makes me in the long run quite nervous. And I'll find ways to not pick up the phone. So to, part, part of the reason I'm, I'm bringing that up is, is because I feel like we do have a an environment where I think we do create an anxious moment in a lot of us by by feeling inferior to the people we are speaking to because either we see them as a, a level to which we don't see ourselves able to talk to them, or or for me personally, there's a lot of times where it's it's that feeling of of not really being able to come across in the right way and. I think, I think there's, there's an element of that within the profession where there are lots of good people, and we're talking, we could talk name loads of them who are just willing to give up their time. But actually, the person at the other end is not always confident or, or believes he, he's, he's the right person to pick the forward up and go. Have you got half an hour? I'd love to pick your brains about this. And like, how we change that might be an interesting way to, to understand it as well because I th- again I think I think once once we understand that talking to somebody and, and sharing and having that reflective moment and, and making notes as we have them conversations and, and, and understanding what we're talking about and what we're trying to get to is actually probably going to be a really strong beneficial way to create a mentorship and actually remove that that insecure threat of of whatever it might be that I'm not good enough to talk to them or they're going to try and take my role or whatever those insecurities appear. Um, and, I, and I think, I think the mentorship is really important, but I, for some reason I thought I'd tell you that I struggle with it. So, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you said you've taken it away from um because there's a couple of points that, that I had. So I, I kind of described um, my my personal situation as almost having an artist's palette, and having really good people that I've worked with or come across before. And you could take a little bit from them, and, and you mix them up, and, and you kind of you you get those. You kind of get the answers that you that you're looking for that you need at that moment in time. And you might choose different people at different time, but I found that don't want to make it sound bad but restricted to that to that group and it's a it, it's a large group but it's it's a it's a restricted group and that's from people i've come across that's people i've met and it, if i go back to the start of the journey what would really help me if i had that if i had that um sounding board that that's multiple of different people at the start just to ask some of those questions the journey might have looked differently Probably still made some of the mistakes that Tony was alluding to. I think you have to do some of that. But to have them people to assist you with your reflections and create some of the direction and guidance, I think is is it, it, for me that's the that's where there can be a real um injection of, of development to to those coming through. And like you say you, you said there about you, you might almost well, I think all of us have probably had it in some point where we've not asked somebody a question because we don't want to come across daft or we don't want to sound daft or we don't it's almost inferiority complex that we think well, I'm not really sure about it and it's then saying, well, if as a organization or as a governing body or as a sport or as an independent body how do we how do we open those doors so how do we kick down them doors to say you know ask the questions or get the questions across, get the contacts so that somebody may answer the question for you, but then on the back of it, you go, well, uh, can I speak to you a bit more about it? Or, you know, they signpost somewhere else as well. I, I, I think we've seen a lot through lockdown of of, of Zoom calls and we've seen a lot of, of different things which has opened up and I think it's been great, but it's also created a bit of a, I don't know, I feel like it's a bit of a, I like seeing people face to face, that's just me. And I think um, if we can continue this idea that we can have these conferences and we can have these discussions and we can get people together, that's really, really good. But if it gets brushed under the carpet because we all just get our heads down and fall our little mouse tracks as soon as everything reopens, I think we've lost an opportunity. And and that's kind of where, where I'm getting to is how how do we open that door? How do How do we create openings and opportunities so that, that can happen, and and like you said, Tony, there, to mentor, to be a mentor, to invest yourself in others without fear as well, I think that's a really important part, rather than guarding knowledge or guarding, and I I think sometimes we see that quite a bit as well, that there's not an investment in the, the youngest people coming up who might, with all that information, do a better job than in the future, and I think we need people to be constantly challenging to do a better job and we should be challenging those to overtake where anything is that we've done.
2: I've heard um, the word
0: uh,
2: insecure and insecurity is mentioned a lot and it was you know, one of the things that um, was in the piece that, that, that the wisdom of insecurity is a book. And I think it's such a powerful tool for a coach or any teacher or practitioner to understand that they've got insecurities and embrace the fact that they have and that there's things that make them uncomfortable and things they don't know because in trying to in in admitting that and trying to find solutions to it that's where you'll acquire knowledge but we, we we have all sat in professional clubs um you know, Greg, you might be doing it right now, and 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 I have constantly where you've sat in technical meetings in professional clubs, and somebody's there with a whiteboard, or a flip chart, or they're showing on a video, and they're talking about well, we want the pivots to do this, we want this person, and and you're thinking I have got no idea what you're on about, and I, I remember listening to. Game plan sessions and technical stuff in professional clubs going. I don't understand this. Well, how do we expect the players to? So actually, the real value is in being able to embrace the fact that you don't understand it and ask questions and acquire knowledge. Um, You know, the the majority of listeners to this will be focused on rugby union. I've listened to Eddie. How many podcasts Eddie Jones done over lockdown? He's never off him and. One thing I've, I've learned is his openness to l- listen to other people. He, you know, he's a big fan of, of cricket and looking at rugby league coaches uh, and, and being honest enough to acknowledge his own failings. You know, he talks about his early career and, and how he was quite brutal and demanding, you know, 80-hour working weeks from all his coaching staff and being up at 4am and stuff like that. And actually, he's mellowed over a period of time. But he's accepted his failings you know there is not the perfect coach there never is i have met and i've spoken with some coaches who are um highlighted as possibly some of the greatest ever you know we, we we've all done that and they're not they're just normal people who get things wrong who um but what they're able to do is they're able to compartmentalize it and kind of park it the, the best coaches i've seen are the ones who are just the same reaction whether they win or they lose. And you can't really work out what they think. And what they'll do is they'll tell you at review what they think. Their body language doesn't really give it away. And and we have a a number of, sometimes it's ex-professionals, I have to say, who are really vocal on social media and criticize this and criticize that. And I've yet to see any of them go on and have really successful coaching careers. Because I just think you can't be too critical. That What you've got to do is ask a question. Question it. Why have you done that? Because it might be that you're doing something that I can't see. Don't criticise it and go, that's stupid. Why would you do that? Go, I, I might be wrong here. Why would you do that? And all the people I work with uh, and have worked with across two sports you know, professionally, the, the, the great practitioners that work in them are the ones that ask a question for clarification. They'll they don't criticize and go, that's wrong, that's stupid. Don't do that. And yeah, that's that's for the kind of the, the social media pundits who very often coach themselves, but they're falling into a trap of being closed-minded.
1: I, I think it's interesting. I, I guess the best advice I'd probably be able to give someone around this is. What's the worst thing they can say if you go and ask somebody a question or you go and you go and ask for help or to you know to understand something? Like no, no isn't a bad answer. I'd rather go up to someone and then go, actually, no, I can't help you, than, than kind of that wondering of, oh, I wonder if they could have. Do you know what I mean? And I I don't know, is is interesting because like, <laughs> I I was probably at the opposite end of the scale. Like I was, as a young coach, I was not, yeah, I probably was quite arrogant, I would say, looking back. And I just had that confidence to go and be the idiot that everyone's like, oh, fucking, he's asking another question here. Like he just won't shut up. Like seven questions deeper. We're already half an hour over the slot. And I'm, I'm still like wanting to ask, and wanting to ask. And I kind of look back at it and cringe a little bit, but I'm also like, actually, I think it was a really good thing because I was willing to. And there was probably that balance of knowing when to shut up um, would have would have been a good one. Still not sure I've learned that. But um, I also just, yeah, just that. It was funny. There's an article came out about Kevin Bowering, I think in Wales online, and, and just how many people he'd helped and, and everything else. And I remember this was, geez, I'd have probably been 1920. So at college, doing an H&D at college and kind of coaching the the, the the first team and the second team or whatever and we were up at Hartbury and Gloucester were training on the other pitch when they used to train on like the pitch on the slope and um, I was just like I'm, I said to the, the you know head coach that uh, you know years and years of coaching experience I was like can I just go and watch Gloucester train because like, I've never seen a professional club train and it was awesome and I was literally just stood there and I was you know watching Vickery and Woodman and this must have been 2004 so they were like World Cup winners so I am like completely starstruck and they're just throwing these guys up in the line And I'm like, I've never seen anything like this. This is incredible. And, um, and Kevin's there. And, and I just, I can't, I, I wish I knew what question I asked him, but I probably ended up having like a half an hour chat with him on the side of this pitch about all of this stuff. And I was like this, I mean, this guy's coach Wales, he's head of coaching for the RFU. Like he's never met me. He doesn't know who I am but he was willing to give up his time just because I was willing to ask a question. And he could have gone as, look, I'm really sorry. i have like, I'm here for a reason. I'm busy. I've got other people to see. And I'd have been like, yeah, absolutely. I get it. But just his willingness. And, and Tony, I love your point about paying it forward and, or even reinvesting. And, and I just think people like that, are, they're just worth their weight in gold in sport. And and we can probably all name, you know, a lot of them, but I, I do think when you find the good ones and you try and model yourself on those good ones. So if someone now comes to me and goes, "Can can I ask you a question?" or "Have you got a bit of time?" I, I just think it would be really wrong to say no because so many people have invested their time in me when they probably had other priorities. Like, you know, Kevin wasn't there to speak to me on the side of the pitch at Gloucester; like he he was there for his day job. But he made that time, and I just, yeah, I, I do I do think it's a great it's a great philosophy to have just to be able to go. If they say no, they say no. But actually, you never, you never really know what you're going to get from them saying yes, and and you don't don't lose
2: anything. For for Greg and Ben, uh, with the you know the the really good coaches that you've you've coached you or or you've worked with, can you think of any that are not humble and and kind of? I, I I think there are limitations to the ones that aren't, but the really good ones have got time for people. Um and and I, so there was there was one coach um that I worked with particularly and I was I was taught just, just the best answer um when you were asked the question. Don't answer it, just say what do you think? Because that if you if you as a coach answer the question with a what do you think, two things happen. If you don't know the answer, you've bought some time to try and work out what it might be. But what you've actually done is you've got a player to self-reflect and think for themselves. How good is that? You know. So stop trying to answer questions and try to facilitate them being able to answer the questions. Um, and the, the the coach that that kind of taught me that was when I was a, an academy player at Bradford, Matthew Elliott, who you know he, he had great success. With Bradford, and then he, he went in there. He coached at um, Cabo Raiders, and then he coached the Penrith Panthers. Um, pretty fierce and bloke, but he, he he was. I don't know. I, I don't know if he, he he wasn't easy to approach. Pretty fierce, and, you know, frightening bloke. But he had time to listen to any player who would provide an attempt at an answer. Didn't care if it was wrong. But he would always go, "What do you think?" And I loved that
0: and I carried it with me. You've both just covered two things that I had, had uh, written down there is the, the 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 plain devil's advocate and for having a reason to do so. Exactly at that point that you mentioned about um, Matthew Elliott there. Um, and, and I love it. I love it. It, it promotes the, the thought. It promotes. I love it when people do it to me as well because you usually have got some kind of thoughts on something and it helps reinforce them and opens a dialogue for a conversation. But from what you said there, Phil, on, on Kev Bowery, um, in my notes, when I was going through and looking and and some of the reflections, um, some of the, the way some of his influence drip fed down by creating some of them networking events or creating, um, uh coach development coach education events which were so broad there would be a subject to discuss and it was just then get everything out there and they were the ones that stood out for me as you picked something up when when you when you weren't you were least expecting it sometimes there were some things flying around and people's opinions because it was driven in such a way that um it was it was very organic and fluid there was a lot of opinions that were able to come out and the back of them, there's probably still people that I would pick the phone up and, and say to them on the back of it, oh, uh, what do you think about this? Just because I know how perhaps they, they'd approach things in the past or their their philosophies about it. And I, for me, that's where I, I wanted to see it, it go is, is a, as a governing body or as a sporting organisation or even as a club. How do you create these moments that then help create the networks? And I think, we're probably getting close to answering answering the question. We have to go out there. We have to create these events that allow people to network and create opportunities for people to ask questions and take away the fact that there are no silly questions when it comes to it. The um, people who, who uh, we had an event with uh, with Brian Ashton, one of our boot rooms. And I'll have to say it because people will be listening to this who know me and and they'll just go, no such thing as a silly question. Well, you asked the the two-minute long question to Brian Ashton that answered itself and it just looked at me and just went, sorry, what was the question? (laughs) And I just think I'd just spoken for about two minutes of starting to ask a question and answered it in my own head. Um, So, yeah, there's there's definitely my kind of of silly question, but I definitely promote for people, you know, Ask the questions or get get people together to promote questions and promote you know like like I mean we all know each other in this room, but we're all different parts of sport and and the country at the moment um, but very easily you, you could promote this kind of conference in a in, in an environment to to discuss these things. I think it's so invaluable that we continue these conversations. Um, once things return to some form of normality, I
3: think. Uh, I, th- I think really, really important what you said in that was the, the the organic part of it. So I know within when when we're in the DPP program for for Leicester, what well, one thing we try to encourage was, and I would promote this quite a lot, would be that if you're a, if you're a, a junior coach or you're a parent who also coaches and you wanna you wanna step off over the barrier and come pitch side and follow one of the coaches round or follow the group round or come over and ask a lot of questions while the session's going on. That that opportunity is there at every Leicester Tigers DPP session because it shouldn't be closed off. It should be open for people. It, it's not a case of, well, actually you're a junior coach and these are these DPP coaches or, or we've got, you know, an academy coach down. Actually it's, I want to help you. So come onto the training field, watch what we do, be next to us and ask questions and, and find out what we're doing. And I'll always go back to them and say they've got to contextualise it. You know, the, 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 big, the big bugbear is the people who see something and then think, right, I'm going to now do that, but don't understand the context or why it's being done and what the reason is for it. And, and that, that that organic feeling to, to it is is what you remember most from it and you take you take more of that learning from it. So, it'll kill me to say this and I might ask Phil to take this out but every Sunday I go for a walk with my brother (laughs) and for all the things that we can fall out over actually there's an organic moment where while we're walking and the kids are off playing we'll have five minutes peace and it'll be a a a check-in on how we both are mentally for our own well-being because you know we do kind of like each other. Definitely edit that bit out. But then the second bit will be some form of coaching conversation or some form of professional development conversation. And it's just natural. And because it's natural, you feel a bit more at ease. Because you're a bit more at ease, you're willing to just open up a little bit more and, and be more responsive to the, the information coming back to you. And you share those moments and then you go away and you reflect on it because you're not under stress and you rest. You're actually feeling really comfortable. So I know every time I meet with Tony, Apart from the fact he's tight, it's always in a coffee shop. It's always really chilled out. Once we've got past the first forty minutes of discussing how poor Castleford are or how poor a place of Yorkshire is, you know, we then get into some really, <laughs> we then get into some some really some really good little conversations about play development, about programming, about how we're trying to, you know, understand things in the environments we're in, and and because of that. That just relaxed environment that, that's where most of the real key learning and an opportunity to develop, I find, comes from. It, it, it's probably more scary when you sit down in a more formalized and an open environment where it's, it's very structured.
2: I find it um, quite amusing sometimes when you see um, bickering between league and union on social media because the people who are involved in it. I've got the highest respect for each other as professionals and meet all the time and get on really well. Um, and it's quite funny um, because, you know, I've, I've had multiple meetings with both Ben and Greg and, and other colleagues in the sport. I've been down to Gloucester and seen Kev. Um, and, and you know, both, both sports have got tremendous amounts to learn from each other, tremendous respect for each other, different practices, but um, those practices influence each other. That, that's certain. But I think it goes it goes beyond just rugby. I mean, um, Ben at the moment is involved in a, a working group. We're reviewing our, our pathway um, for players at the moment. And We've got a working group that's got um, colleagues from Rugby League, Rugby Union, cricket, netball, um, hockey. You know, we, we, We've got people from EIS. We've got you know, so many different disciplines because ultimately we're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to make young athletes better. And there's so much commonality. But to do that, you've got to embrace the fact that there's there's bits you don't know. And actually, what we're doing is we're showing our ideas to other sports, because essentially we have insecurities about whether we've made the right decisions or not. So we're getting critical check and challenge. So being comfortable with being uncomfortable and questioning yourself are insecurities, but Jeez, they're essential to be an effective practitioner um, and an effective coach, you know. Um But ju- just about Greg with the coffees, they're always on expenses. I'm not buying it. And, and if I'm, a, if I'm a meeting with Ben, he's usually got wagon wheels.
0: Yeah, I always buy the wagon wheels. Always buy the wagon wheels. Jammy ones.
2: Jammy ones, of course.
0: Oof, the expense.
1: I... I... I think just jumping back to your point Ben I think I think there's definitely an element of responsibility for clubs and organizations and NGBs and stuff to do it I, I think one of my biggest um, or the, yeah one of the biggest positives from a coaching sense to come out of I guess the last kind of 12 13 months now is actually just maybe how much more how much more more people have taken responsibility for creating their own, opportunities to learn and that's I would have definitely seen and heard a lot in the various environments I was in of people going oh well the club should provide this for me and oh well that you know the RFU should provide this to me or the IRFU should provide this I'm kind of like really like they can't they can't be all things to all people like you've got to want to do some of this stuff yourself and it comes back to that question of actually, are you willing to go and ask people? You might get with a few no's, you know, you can get met with a few of them, fine, but keep going, because you'll find plenty of people that say yes. And I genuinely do think that probably shown.
2: It's quite funny with governing bodies, because uh, I've now worked with two, and closely with a third. So, um, obviously, I've played rugby union for the last 15 years, and, and, once we get out of this uh, pandemic situation, I'll be having a a trot round with the local team. Um, So I've I've kind of experienced that rugby union's community can be really quite critical of the RFU. Um, And I've absolutely been part of the rugby league community is very critical of the RFL. And lo and behold, the working football football community is heavily critical of, of the FA. And the unique thing is that in every governing body, they haven't got all the resources that they need to do all the things that they want to do. And every governing body is full to the brim of people who really would like to do more than they can do, and they're doing the best things with what they have available to them. And in, in, in absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about the very top of the tree because I've not been there, and you know, maybe I never would, but the vast majority of people who work in governing bodies could probably earn a lot more money doing other things but well, they do it because they love the sport that they work in. Um, so there's almost comfort in the fact that it's normal for people to be crit- critical of their governing bodies. Um, but it's you are the government of a sport. When have government's ever been popular? You know, it's um, if you if you give out £10 notes they'll say, why is it not 20? So you can't win.
1: No, very true. What I do find interesting, just my last point on this, I guess, is is how lots of people talk about governing bodies as an entity that's almost detached from the people because they know the people and they like the people individually and they get on really well with the people and they respect the people. But then they talk about oh the something something, and you're like, is that not made up of the people you were just like saying that you like and you get on with? And it's it's just this bizarre detachment that they're they're not deemed the same, which I've I've never really been able to work out. But.
2: I, I've been in um, meetings whereby people have said, "Ah, oh, bloody FA or bloody RFL and I've gone, "You know, I work for them." And I mean, no, oh, I don't mean you. And it's like, well, they're all they're all the kind of the same. But 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 here is the difference: sport is an industry where people are really impassioned because huge uh, percentages of of society. Love it. So when you finish work for the day, for for the average person, they like to think about sport. They watch sport. Sport is their release. So they've got opinions on it. When you're lucky enough to work in it, you just got to face the wrath that everybody's opinion doesn't necessarily match yours. But how bad would it be if there wasn't that enthusiasm? Imagine that there was no criticism because there was no interest. Jeez, that's not what we want. We've just got to kind of bob along on that enthusiasm and take the rough for the smooth, you know,
0: I, Tony, I've been in uh, in meetings uh, working for a governing bo- national governing body, presenting with somebody else working for the national governing body who was then gone. Yeah, they should be doing that. <laughs> they should be doing this, not me. It's that faceless organisation—it's that easy to for people to uh, to slip into. I won't say which one.
1: <laughs> love it uh, guys I'm going to draw this one to a close and we are going to shift it on so uh, Greg we're coming to
3: you what are you going to chat about yeah so um it's quite interesting actually because where I'm going to go now with, with the with the podcast that I listen to Um it kind of touched on a lot of the things we've been talking about it kind of brings it around full circle so um, I just want to talk about the, the high performance podcast which Jay Comfries does now uh, the one I've decided to talk about is one with uh, surprisingly a surprisingly rugby league bloke called Sean Wayne. Now, the, f- the, f- the first thing I, I just want to say on this is I, I, I'd, I'd love to actually be able to talk to Sean and have this conversation with him, is that I was coached by Sean Wayne in the academy when I was, when I was a junior at Wigan. And I'll be honest, I didn't really enjoy it that much. <laughs> and, and, and part of me, Part of me wanted to go into coaching because I felt, I didn't understand what had happened at Wigan and I always thought, actually, if I had a chance, I'd try and do things a bit different. And when I sat down and listened to his podcast, I started to realise that I didn't really understand what coaching entailed at times and how difficult a job it was. And actually, what I probably found at the end of it was that I didn't I didn't really want to hear... An- understand what was being told to me as a junior and actually that his interest was he was trying to make me the best I could be and and actually because of it my opinion changed about three years ago when I took my son to a rugby match and I was fortunate enough to be able to go into into one of the bar areas um and Sean Wayne walked in and stood at the bar next to me and within the, the next 10 seconds turned around and just went, hi, Greg, how are you? And said hello to my son. And it was one of those moments where you kind of, I kind of went, I didn't ever think he'd, he'd ever know who I was or remember my name. And it just showed you that, you know, as, as a junior rugby player trying to make it to the top and having my ambitions and not having, for what I thought at the time, as a coach who believed in me, it, I was so wrong. And, and that's one of my big learnings in terms of coaching is that actually that's one of the, the, the mistakes I've made is that just because just because you might for the first time be told by a coach you need to work on something or you're not actually as good as what you you think you are right now, it, it's not actually a bad thing. And it's not it's not a bad coach. It's actually a very good coach. And you've got to be able to understand how to take the information. And as i am learned as a coach, I've got to understand how to give that message. Um. That's where he goes in, in the first part of his, his talk. He talks about clear expectations and standards. Um, and he, he talks about it in his own journey and experience uh, as a player, he got released at Wigan when he was after playing about eight or nine years at Wigan. And he never really knew why he was released. And, and what his thought from that moment on was that I want to empower my players with all the knowledge that they need so that selection is never a shock. And it really got me thinking about, about me and my journey in, in sport and then as, uh, how we try and do things within our, our programme at Leicester. And the, 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 the thing that resonates with me is that selection should never be a shock. So, so that got me thinking about how do we support players on a pathway to ensure that that is something that, that is really consistent in our, in our programme. So we we've looked in, in in time since then at how we sort of close the gap between perception and reality, and how we get our players to be more reflective of their ability, and how they can they can actually look into detail about where they are as a player, and then get those comparative reflections from the coaches, and then that can create conversations about where that gap appears and how it how it how it happens. So for an example, like say we've got. Uh, we're looking at catch and pass and a player rates himself it, it, on our scaling system of one to four We never go five because what we've learned is kids will pick the middle ground because no not many kids will want to say they are they're better than the average or they're, they're not very good so because we go one to four it actually means you have to say you're either above or below average and that's a big I found that's a big psychological thing for players to to be confident in actually, honestly reflecting on the on their ability so we get them to do that and then the big question is it's dead easy to put a number in but we ask the players then on a document to put the the reason why why do you think you are a two a three a four and that then gives a bit of detail into what they're seeing when they sit down with their coach and their coach says using the same system actually we we see you as as this number and this is our reason why We've then got a real good conversation. And what we're doing there is we're hoping to start a conversation with players where we're going, well, actually, you're a little bit better than what you think in this area, but I want you to work on this. Or actually, I think you've are I think you been a bit bit too, too confident. I think this is actually where we can look at. But you tell me why I'm wrong and, I, and, I, and I'll see what we can have a conversation about. And we've really tried hard to implement that in, in the last year or so or, or prior to lockdown as well with our players so that they can really start to understand that that reflective practice so again selection or deselection isn't a shock so if they are seeing the, the level as quite low well then they've got a real clear strategy of what they might want to try and work on and it comes back to that mentorship asking questions of your coaches well at the moment I think I'm struggling with this what sort of activities can I do away from here to get better um, and then fucking lost me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, oh, that, sorry. and then the, the, the next part that we've taken that to is we've used it with the lads going into the academy for the first time so as, as probably everyone will know in the, in the Leicester programme and, and most programmes are the same we've got, we've got four large regions so when we pull in our 16s as a, four, a group of 45 for the first time you can have players who have never seen another player from another region so what we're constantly doing is going, right, now you're in a new environment. You want a four-scale stays the same, but do a reflective practice. But now you can see what, what this new landscape looks like because a three in, in Norfolk might not be a three in Staffordshire. And, and then what we try and get them to do again is, and what I've been trying to really push on them is, is, and now I want you to do a reflective piece watching two or three academy games or footage from two years ago or a first-team match. Or an international game, and those numbers are still one, two, three, and four. And if you're a scrum half and you can tell me that you think your passing is as good as as Ben Youngs, then I haven't had a problem with that. But you've then got to give me the reasons why it is, and you've got to then be able to show that and perform that when you're when you're getting the opportunity. Because if not, we'll have conversations about are you where you think you are. We see this in you right now. Do you agree or disagree? the evidence will come more more next year because covid has had a bigger impact but but we've tried really hard to to become very open with the players but also help them so that again that selection isn't a shock there's always an understanding of where they sit in the bigger picture and and i, I found it really fascinating when i when i was listening through through the, the the podcast about just how we would go about doing that and i don't i don't know whether... There anybody else has has ever thought in that way or or i'm sure everyone's had these thoughts but how do how do people take that part of that that
0: podcast hi greg um yeah it was really interesting um knowing sean when he was uh i think he was assistant coach to stuart wilkinson with the um reserves when i first met him and and did a bit with wigan um and, and hearing some of the things that you've alluded to there and um, almost probably his reflections as well on on going through that period of time of, of both himself and probably some from when he was a coach too. But it, that whole point on if if you' de- if you're selected or deselected or another decision is made that you are not expecting something hasn't gone right leading up to that cliff edge, that, that, that pivotal moment. Um, and I, I've certainly learned, I've probably had moments of getting it right, but also getting it wrong as well. When you're, when you're working through and, and we know how individual and how different players are. Um, and I, And also how players develop at different times as well. I think within the last couple of years with the academy team at Yorkshire, we made a really conscious decision uh, similar to yourself of of the movement out of academy under 18s into a senior academy or beyond that there shouldn't be no surprises when we sit down and have those meetings. And that doesn't mean that you tell them the day before the meeting (laughs) it's a surprise then. But there there shouldn't be any any big surprises when when the players and probably the parents are walking through the door, they should have a really good understanding of where they are in their own grouping, uh, understand where that group sits in. Like you've mentioned there, uh, like a hierarchy, DPP, Academy, Senior Academy and Senior Player and then International Player, a one to four is very different at each level of those. Uh, And we, we had quite a... We spent quite a lot of time in, in the discussion on there. We actually split um, some of our psychological skill work into self-awareness, self-organising, and we loosely used growth mindset. We used some of the principles that you would have in growth mindset around making errors, around um, uh, failing forwards as it would be, around trying things, around um, being resilient to, to work away, around obstacles, but that self-awareness was the biggest thing, and transferability of self-awareness was. We were probably at a point where we were recognising that transferring that, that, that was the hard bit. That was that was like you say, DPP into academy, or the the, the for us the best the perceived best half back in the West area coming in and. Being in competition for that spot when they've never been in competition for any selection. That was happening in kind of a junior academy and in an under-16s level. Um, There are still some players that we found. So our transferability was there were still some players in senior academy who had never who had always been that the first. The best player in their position, they'd never been dropped as such, so they get first pick on at school and the first pick on a club, the first pick on an academy, and they've they've gone through. And it's not—I'm not saying that's been a smooth journey because we all know the, the ups and downs that some players have that way. And um, we, we were then looking, how we do we? How do you transfer that? So whether that's at, at like a one-to-four scale, whether that's a different conversation, or or whether potentially. Should for that player, should we put in a deselection or a non-selection so that it is a shock? Because I've never dealt with anything like that before, and then build a scaffold around how they deal with that side of things. So probably a couple of things, yeah. I I, I like the one to four, I think that's really good, and I think definitely that area of um understanding where you are yourself and where your coach sees you there should no there shouldn't be any cliff edges to fall off or climb up when you sit down and have that conversation there shouldn't be any surprises unless in that example that that's something that's identified and probably brings up a different conversation around how we how do we scaffold players overcoming speed bumps
3: yeah, and, and on that, that, that one-to-four system is not, not a definitive you are able to play rugby or you're not because we within that, we look at the psychological aspects of them players as well. And actually, we use them as really... Uh, the idea is to use them as, as, as good conversations between players and coaches and actually between players and people outside of our environment who have got such a big part in their development. Um, it, it, it's Because actually, sometimes there's probably a, a A lack of clarity between a dpp environment and a community club environment because they just don't always communicate but absolutely like i say it's not a it's not a it's not a definitive one to four and that's it it's just constant reflection so that you can understand what we might want to be looking at to improve on or you might want to work on and and our curriculum then then leads into that supports our curriculum of development because then We create a a, a program which will support the areas that we're looking to develop, both psychologically, tactically. You know the four pillars that we know. So, yeah, I think think you're right as well. I think in terms of it, it's a really good conversation to start to have. Tom, I
2: I think there's real value in the 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 whole concept of collaborative profiling. So, you know, and 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 you know what, you don't need. Um, extensive tools to do it you just you write down a list of things that you want your players to be able to do you know think of uh, in football we use the the, the four corners we see four pillars in rugby league and 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 you know it's essentially all the same thing but think of the best player that you can envisage and why are they that player and then give yourself a score one to four in each of those areas and for a coach, it's a fascinating insight into what's going on in a player's mind. Um, and generally speaking, if it's zeros and ones across the board, you've got a real problem with confidence. Um, if it's fours across the board, you've probably got a real, co- a real issue with arrogance. What you want is somewhere in the middle and how you manage that and bring them into that middle point and make them honestly reflect that's where the skill lies because it, it's tough, but I, of, of the players that I've worked with, um, the ones that really progress are able to make accurate representations. They're able to go, do you know what? I am good at that. And I know, and I'm not ashamed or uncomfortable going, yeah, I'm good at that. But they're also very aware of what they're not good at. So they're, they're reflective and they're honest. And I think that's, about, that's what honesty means. Honesty isn't just telling the truth. It's kind of being able to be confident enough. And again, it probably goes back to this, this theme that we kept uh, hitting on of insecurities. I'm not good at that. But I'm willing to share that with you because that will help me get better.
1: We, we talk quite a lot in IDPs, a brand future potential. And, and I think it, it can be definitely a useful exercise to, to be looking at other people and making those kind of self-assessments, but I'm always a little bit conscious that it becomes a, just too much of a comparative exercise and, and maybe you lose a little bit of the focus on you and actually what you, what your future potential is. And, and that that's where, uh, it, it, to be honest, like it doesn't bother me what the player chooses. As long as I understand have they based this on a senior international or have they based this on themselves? Like, it, I, That's up to them. It's their IDP. They own it. But I think that's always one of my key questions. Like what, what, what's your marker for this? If it was me, I'd probably go future potential because what I, what I really like is you're never going to achieve it. it. It's always going to keep moving. So, so 10 last year or two years ago is is not the same 10 as this year or next year or beyond. So it's, which can I think maybe can be a little bit frustrating for players, but I think it's also benchmarking to go, okay, well, you're, you're saying you're a six now, but let's be really detailed about what 10 looks like. So give me a description. Let's write this down. Let's build it into what you're, you know, how you're picturing this or writing it or whatever. Because then in a year's time, we can look at that and go, well, hold on. Like 10 last year is your seven now. So there's your benchmark. That's how you can recognise that you've moved. And I I often think maybe that's the missing piece. We probably aren't clear enough on what the benchmark is at the top end to then really be able to, for the player to understand, I know I've gone past this. I I had this conversation with my brother the other day randomly. um, I said, if this had been you five years ago, could you now do the job you're doing? And he's like, no, there's, there's literally no way I wouldn't have had the skills and the ability to do it. And I just said, well, that's your benchmark, isn't it? But you're really clear on what those skills were and what you're now doing. And I, and I think it applies to everything, but I, that, that would be maybe the missing part for me where it, it becomes a little bit of a hollow process, not in a formal way you're benchmarking it, but you've just got to be able to reflect effectively.
2: It's a huge challenge across all sports. Um, I mean, I, I was reading Rugby World magazine, um, this month, and the, there's a, a piece in there about comparisons between the modern game and and the historical game, and how people look at it through rose tinted glasses. Um, I think during the period of lockdown, we saw a resurgence in um, uh, showing retro games and the brilliant. You know, I've, I've I've seen games that I was at in the early nineties, um, and I was stood on a an, on a milk crate trying to trying to see over the fence, Um and we all you know look at at things differently over a period of time and that that shows how games always evolve and we are finding in women's football it is hugely difficult to do the benchmarking of what you need because it's moving so much it has moved so rapidly um in that what would have won you a world cup in terms of physical performance what would have won you a world cup a few years ago won't even get you to be on a comparable level now, because things that when a sport professionalises, it moves so quickly. Eventually it levels out, but it still progresses. So when the end point is moving, it's very much kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen that shift happens series of clips about basically how the, the, the future constantly changes. We're, in our system, in women's football, we're preparing players for a game that doesn't exist at the moment. And there's elements of that in all sports. You know, the, particularly with the way the tackle area is changing with concussion protocols and protecting players and player welfare. We need players to do things that they don't need to do at the moment if they were in the first team because the game's going to evolve and the game's going to change. So um, that raises the question of how important are adaptable players who can play with constraints, who can um, be, be given a challenge and be able to surmount it? I know we mentioned... Uh, before about deselection and and, and model sele- de- uh, select, the I I used to do that quite a bit because I, I I noticed as a as an academy manager, players would come in who were been the best player in their team, never been dropped. There was even some of them who've never lost because they played in these super teams that won all the time. We have that in women's football now. We have players who go into the WSL academy uh, at sixteen. And between the ages of 12 and 16, when they're in a regional talent club, they haven't lost. And how much learning do you get when you lose? And if you haven't lost, how much learning have you missed out on? So, you know, some great work by Anya McNamara, Professor Dave Collins, um, Neil, Neil McCarthy, who have, have done work around uh, Rocky Road. And, and the whole concept of talent needs trauma is, is actually misunderstood. Trauma... In its literal sense, he's quite stressful, but it needs setbacks. It needs needs to lose sometimes. You know, and I, I remember I, I, I worked with a, a player who was at Halifax as a, a youngster, went on and had a, a great career at Warrington, a lad called Simon Griggs. He's now the Halifax coach. Um, and I, I dropped him for an academy game. Um, and I'll be honest, I was inexperienced at the time, of course, but I I made up a reason and the reason I dropped him was because he's never been dropped. And I wanted to see how he how he worked. And basically, he thought I was an idiot and he turned the house down for a week, which, you know, in a kind of a roundabout way is the reaction I wanted him to show, the kind of I'll, I'll show you attitude. Um, But it made him work harder, which gave me a, a bit of an insight into this kid's got something quite special. And it, it proved to be the case.
1: I, I think you raise a great point about the the talent needs trauma if I'm honest I wish they'd called it something else trauma I think is is probably just a slightly over dramatic word and and I'm sure they'd have a very good answer for why they chose that but I I, I do maybe just think that it it miscells the picture to like the layman coach do you know what I mean to 98 to percent of the coaching population when they hear that they're going great well we're gonna have to you know do something pretty severe to to, to almost damage this kid. I, mean, I just think it could have been sold slightly differently. You know? Yeah,
2: I I, I think um, the same people who criticise talent needs trauma um, agree with and support the Rocky Road principle. Essentially, they're the same things. You know, if you if if things go well, you need things to go badly. But for things to go traumatic is an emotive word. And it probably provokes a bit of misunderstanding. So I I, I, I get that. I get that absolutely. And I, I agree with it. I, I just, I think if you don't take it too literally and you understand the concept of what it's trying to achieve, that's when you really get the learning from it. But, um, you know, we've all spoke about mistakes. We've all spoke about um, things we used to do that we wouldn't do now. Um, that's, that, that's what we want our players to be able to do. To build up their toolkit build up their resilience, build up their adaptability so that they see a problem in front of them and they're able to cope with it. Whether that problem is a 19-stone South Sea Islander prop forward who's just going to pelt at them you know, as low as they can and how am I going to stop this player? Um, or I've not been picked this week. Or there's no contract next year. you know. Or, or the coach I've always worked with is moving to a different club. Or we're, we're, we're going to kick Every time we get the ball this week, we're kicking, we're kicking, we're kicking. All these different things that players need to adapt to. If they have had a, a wider range of experiences, they'll be able to cope with that. And, and adaptability and variability, I think, is one of the key aspects of, of, of any talent development system.
3: Absolutely.
1: Greg, did you want to jump in?
3: Uh, I- Definitely, definitely agree in terms of the, the adaptability. And uh, it kind of, uh, I'd bring it back into a little bit more about the Sean Wayne part as well in terms of his, his podcast was, he talks about, uh, he's a big belief in a Japanese saying on Kaizen, which is basically about constantly improving. And it's interesting, he, he, it comes across slightly wrong because he actually says he's, he's never happy. Um and, and that, that that prompts some really interesting questions within the podcast. Um and obviously I don't think I don't think when you when you listen to him, it's not the fact that he's never happy, it's that actually he is constantly trying to evolve everything that he does in order to make sure that he can be at the top of his game doing doing the best job he can do. And and I think we're talking very much about the same the same thing. It might it might be different ways. It might sound slightly different, and it kind of fits in back into some of that mentoring we talked about. Where I said before, like, we have to contextualise the information we're having. And what 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 I like is the fact that a lot of a lot a lot of people, coaches at, at all levels, junior clubs, professional environments, you know, the the dog and duck pub team, all those sort of people. There is lots and lots of people who are constantly looking for improvement. And whether that is by understanding the, the the players in front of them and figuring out how you make them ready for the next opportunity that comes their way, whether that is training in two days' time, whether that is a game at the weekend, whether that is a festival in the summer, whether that's, you know, for us, as lesson if that's an academy game, a university player, or a, a professional contract, it's constantly trying to improve our systems and our ability to coach players and and work with players in order to to get them better. And and one of the other things he talked really really well about is the fact that he shares a little bit about his past, and about when he was growing up, and it was a troubled past, and. He understands that he wants to be the best person he can be for the people in, in his company. And when you put those three things together within his, his podcast, I find it's a, a really powerful way to look at how we we can be as coaches. So having clear expectations and standards for the players we're working with, but then... Being there, knowing when to put our arm around them, knowing when to go really, really truthful with them, and when to maybe just turn it back, when to when to pat them on the back and, and blow the tires up a little bit, and and constantly reviewing what we do because we want to be better so that we can be better for those players in front of us. I think was just a, I just found it a really, really compelling podcast, and it really got me thinking and reflecting about what what am I doing in order to make sure that the environment is rich for those people in front of me? And what am I doing to make sure that in 10 years' time, it doesn't matter whether they are, or it, it does to some extent, it, it, it's what are they doing now? What are they doing in 10 years' time? Are they still doing something they love doing? Did they come into, into my company and did they leave it feeling that they've got something which just kept them going with what we wanted to do? I don't, I don't have to have the satisfaction of someone saying if it weren't for you I wouldn't have been played that actually all I want to know is are you still playing do you still enjoy what you're doing was being in, in, in my environment something or the environment that I was involved in I should say it did did you find that something that benefited you in the long term and I, I just I just think it was a really really good thing away and I thought it actually fits in really nicely with some of the things we've been talking about tonight
1: absolutely spot on i I think there's loads in there i I guess my mind probably just drifted maybe kind of the the surfing analogy i would i would use quite a lot around a a surfer probably strives to find the perfect wave then they know it's not going to happen because as soon as they ride what is as close to perfect as they can imagine they go well that was awesome but that's now moved my expectations of what perfect or the best experience is for the next one and I think what you've described there is exactly the same in in my head. It's it's you or that player constantly seeking. Um, and and um, guy I had a conversation with a few months ago. He summed this up perfectly. He said it, it's always about um, searching for becoming, but you never become. There's never an end point. We know there's never an end point. You'll never arrive at a destination. You'll never actually achieve whatever it is. A ticker box comes back to you know Alan Watson and Tony talked about earlier but it doesn't stop you having a hell of a time looking for it. And that's the fun, isn't it? I think for, for us and anybody that plays sport, it it maybe just in life in general. Um, Cool. I'm, I'm really conscious of your time, guys. This is, um, yeah, we're into like an hour and a half now. So I I think we'll probably finish that there. Although we, I'm sure we could go on for longer, but uh, we'll do a quick, quick round. Um, Have you got other things that you would be suggesting people to take a look at? So, um, if there's anything else that springs to mind, whether it's related to the topic or it's just something else you've engaged with recently um, and you want to suggest something, then by all means jump in and uh, hit us up with some suggestions.
2: One that I, I took from teaching, which was um, try and get as much experience as you can from other sports and other activities. So um, in, in, in practical coaching, sense if you are a coach at a local club doing a particular sport um go to another local club and and ask if you can have a look at what coach is doing that other sport um i remember when i was teaching i was told uh, a great bit of advice which was get as many level ones as you can in lots of different sports because not only will you learn some different things and some different approaches um you'll also meet different people in different sports who will be good connections who will help you learn a bit more um so i I, i've got level ones in nine different sports but now there's a problem i've got um three nearly four year old twin boys and wherever they go and whatever they do i'm bloody qualified probably to do it and i'm just gonna get dragged into coaching things that i never wanted to coach in the first place so Whilst you do that experience, don't share that you've got it with other people because they'll drag you in.
1: Love that. Great advice. Uh, ben, any suggestions?
0: Um, probably my main one is um, whether you are just starting to coach, whether you're the most experienced coach or wherever you are in between, is never underestimate reflection. Never, ever underestimate reflection with that Um, with your co-coaches, with the players, with your parents, but also with yourself. I think it's such a valuable tool for everything we've probably spoke about today and and the Kaizen aspect of it. And if you've got your standards and your expectations, they come into it. But um, that that reflection piece is read up about it, find something that suits you and your group that you're doing. uh, And it, it really will pay dividends. Great
3: stuff, thank you, Greg. Yeah, I, I agree with what both Tony and Ben are saying. In terms of of what I've found, just been really useful for for listening to. I found I found uh, the high high performance podcast been really useful with a variety of, of, of very different coaches and, and people from business, which has been quite quite interesting and and showed some really interesting in points in that. Uh, and I suppose the the other thing, what the other one we're I've enjoyed but I've only enjoyed it now now that I've reflected on what actually I was doing was a uh, when I was teaching there was a lot of obviously mentorship in teaching and, and there was a guy called Doug Lamov who was firing out these books and obviously as a young newly qualified teacher who kind of thought I must have learnt it all at uni I don't need to listen to, to what this guy is and it's quite funny, like again, over time when you go back and reflect, I thought that he's a teach like a champion was, was a was a good book. Where actually, it might not necessarily tell you things you don't already do, but it just gives you a little bit of clarity and context as to why you might do it. Uh, and 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 again, for me, that's always a big thing is is contextualise what it is I've learned and, and apply it to my environment and, and, and understand what 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 it is and where it fits in at the right time. So uh, those would be my two two recommendations.
1: Top stuff. Fantastic. Guys, can't thank you enough uh, for this. Uh, I've absolutely loved this conversation. It's uh, It's been hugely insightful. Um, and yeah, it will definitely kind of feed my thinking for, for quite a while. So thank you very much. I'm uh, going to round up the roundup. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contribution to a really brilliant discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.